0: Thank you for downloading this podcast from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. This episode of Pardes from Jerusalem features Rabbi Nachama Goldman Berish on Parashat Re'eh. If you're interested in downloading other digital content, please visit elmod.pardes.org. Chapter 13 in Deuteronomy brings three offenses that might lead Israelites astray from absolute and exclusive allegiance to God. The first is false prophecy and the serious concern that dream diviners or false prophets would come to lead the people astray. Moses warns the people that if someone comes and gives a sign and then tells the people to go worship another god, that is a clear sign of false prophecy and the prophet or dream diviner should be put to death. The second example is an individual, notably a family member, who tries to lead his family to worship deities other than God. Even Eishet Chekecha, literally a bosom, meaning loving wife, who leads her husband astray, must be stoned to death. The third offense is of an entire city that shows disloyalty to God and is condemned to death. The passage is found in Dvarim 13. If you hear it said of one of the towns that the Lord your God is giving you to dwell in, that some Ben B'lial, or scoundrels from among you, have gone and subverted the inhabitants of their town, saying, Come, let us worship other gods whom you have not experienced, you shall investigate and inquire and interrogate thoroughly. If it is true, the fact is established, that a porn thing was perpetuated in your midst— Put the inhabitants of that town to the sword, and put its cattle to the sword. Doom it and all that is in it to destruction. Gather all its spoil into the open square, and burn the town, and all its spoil as a holocaust to the Lord your God. And it shall remain an everlasting ruin, never to be rebuilt." Let nothing that has been doomed stick to your hand in order that the Lord may turn from his blazing anger and show you compassion. And in his compassion increase you as he promised your fathers on oath. For you will be heeding the Lord your God, obeying all his commandments that I enjoin upon you this day, doing what is right in the sight of Lord your God. End of the passage. So this is pretty stuff, pretty heavy stuff. And uh, it, it condemns an entire city to death by sword. And the burning of all of the property, all of the objects found in the town, and it will be completely annihilated. And we're going to see certain textual comparisons uh, a little later on in the podcast uh, that will remind us of other situations in which there has been total annihilation. But in the meantime, what I'd like to focus on is the idea that every human being in the city seems to be condemned to death. And one of the questions that comes up for commentaries is what about the children? What about the minors? Because how can you condemn minors to death for the sins of their parents? That's morally very problematic, and it's being commanded by a God who is thought of as both compassionate and just. And so this becomes a major question. Rambam, Maimonides, describes the punishment of the idolatrous city in chapter 4 of Hilchot Avodat Kochavim, Laws Concerning Idolatry. He has an entire chapter devoted entirely to the condemned city. We're only going to look at one piece of it. Maimonides writes, every human being who is in the city is killed by the sword, including children and women, if the entire city was led astray. And if the idol worshippers are found to be the majority then all the children and wives of the idolaters are killed by the sword, but not the families of those who did not worship idolatry." In other words, Maimonides has a slight backdoor clause where he says if there is a minority who do not worship idols, meaning adult men, then their wives and children are spared. But the majority can turn a city into an nidachat, and then that population will be destroyed. Rambam's closing statements about the killing of women and children aroused debate and controversy between the Spanish sage Rabbi Meir Halevi Abulafia, known as Rama, and the Provençal sages of Lunel in 1199, five years before Rambam died. And really, again, the debate was around the killing of children. Rabbi Meir Halevi questioned the Rambam as follows. I am surprised by what he writes. All the children and wives are killed by the sword. On what basis are these women killed? If they worshiped idols, then they themselves are among the people of this condemned city. If they did not worship idols, why are they killed? Moreover, concerning what Rambam writes, all the children are killed, far be it from God to perform wickedness, since when when is a minor held responsible and condemned? Moreover, where the Gemara seeks to rule that the law concerning a city is more severe than that of individuals who engaged in idolatry, it points out only that the property is destroyed. If the Rambam were correct, the Gemara would have had to mention the killing of women and children, for that is obviously more severe than the destruction of property. Rabbi Meir Levi challenges the Rambam based on a logical argument, as well as a precise analysis of various sugyod in the Talmud. However, the Tanaim in rabbinic text, were divided as to the law concerning the miners of the city. The Sifrei, Sifrei in Dvarim brings this debate. The inhabitants of that city, some said the miners are not left alive. Abba Hanan taught, Fathers shall not be put to death on account of their children and children on account of their fathers. Deuteronomy 24 verse 16. This verse is talking about a condemned city. So already here in a very early Tanaitic Midrash, we see the debate around the children, which is going to be picked up later by Maimonides and Rabbi Halevi. And you have two positions. The Tanakhama of this Midrash says, no, the minors are not left alive. Abba Hanan says, what are you talking about? That goes against Deuteronomy 24, 16. Children will not be put to death on account of the sins of their fathers. Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Akiva also debate this question. Rabbi Eliezer feels the children are killed. This is in a Tosefta in Sanhedrin. Rabbi Akiva suggests they are spared. It would seem that behind this debate, there are two fundamentally different approaches to the law of the condemned city. Those who maintain that the minors of the city are not to be killed appear to regard the verdict of this city as a regular legal act, punishment by the court. If in fact, it is a punishment by the court and the text that we read in Devarim 13 talks about inquiring and investigating, suggesting some sort of legal process, then innocent people cannot be killed on account of the guilty. That goes against all of the regular legal principles of the Torah. In contrast, the second school of thought seems to feel that the law of the condemned city is a suspension of the normal rules of justice. This is not the only time that laws in Dvarim go against other laws of the Torah. Another example is the beautiful captive woman who, according to some, is a complete suspension of other mitzvot in the Torah because it is carried out at a time of war. And, and in the Talmud, it suggests that even a priest could bring home such a woman, even though the priest normally is barred from um, marrying converts, for instance. And there are many such examples in Tvarim where a law is pitted against other mitzvot, and then you have to wrestle with how to uh, reconcile. In this case, the second school of thought says we don't have to reconcile, meaning it's a complete suspension of the normal rules of operation. If the killing of the inhabitants of the condemned city is not a punishment like any other meted out by the court, then how is this act to be defined? In the Guide to the Perplexed, Maimonides explains the inhabitants of an ir nidachat that's what the Talmud calls this subverted city. They're killed not in the legal sense as punishment, because again, if it was a legal sense, you'd have to have the same channels of justice that are carried out by the court, but for heresy, which suspends normal channels of legal system, and the Rambam writes, for this reason, their property is also burned and is not left to their heirs, as it would be if they were put to death as a punishment meted out by the court. Normally, when people are executed, their property is then left to be inherited by their children or by their brothers or the community. Here, the property is completely burned, which suggests a suspension of the normal way in which the court operates. Rabbi David Svi Hoffman, in his commentary on Sefer Devarim, explains the law of the Irni Dacha differently, paying special attention to the killing of miners and bringing the startling comparison to Stom and Amora. He writes, There's no reason to question why the miners are put to death. The nation of Israel in this instance is representing the Holy One. The city that is condemned to destruction is like Stom and Amora." Israel, God's nation, is commanded to carry out the verdict, like the example of the great flood and the overturning of Stome and Amorah, where everything was destroyed, even the miners. So likewise concerning the condemned city. By comparing the Irni to stone, we are meant to understand that this carrying out of a divine edict in which mercy is swallowed up by divine justice is what's happening here. In Stome, everyone and everything was obliterated by an act of God. Here too, Israel is only acting as God's agent. Rabbi Elchanan Samet makes another interesting and possibly even more startling connection. The law of the condemned city is expressed in one word in verse 16, chapter 13 in Tvarim, you shall utterly destroy ha -ha it, and all that is in it. The law of this condemned city is a war of cherem, cherem meaning annihilation. The war of annihilation closest to that of the condemned city is surprisingly enough that which we are commanded concerning Amalek. The Siforna notes this in his commentary on verse 16 in Dvarim in our chapter, and its animals by the sword to erase their memory, the animals, the memory of the animals, thereby avenging the blessed God, as is the case concerning Amalek, as we learn in Deuteronomy 25, verse 19, you shall wipe out the memory of Amalek. So explains the prophet Samuel when he says in the book of Samuel 1, chapter 15, 3, you shall put to death man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. The beginning of the verse that Sforna quotes from Shmuel is, go and smite Amalek and annihilate ha all that they have, you shall not have mercy on them. And that word, cherim, appears again in chapter 18 in the uh, book of Samuel, go and annihilate ha the sinners, Amalek, and wage war against them. A war of annihilation was always waged for religious reasons. And in a war of complete annihilation, the enemy was killed entirely. No captives were taken. Taken spoils in such a war was considered a most serious transgression. As we are told in the case of the condemned city, verse 18, nothing of what was set aside for destruction shall remain in your hand in order that God will return from his fierce anger. So what we've seen Rav Hoffman and now Rav Samet do is compare the Kerem, the utter annihilation of the Irnidachat to Stomen Amora or to Amalek. And that actually is quite interesting and suggests a kind of rottenness, a a deep religious corruption that can only be redressed by utter annihilation. The linguistic connection pointed out by Rav Samet, linking the Erni Dacha to Amalek, suggests that a community that distances itself from God of, the God of Israel and worships idols in an institutionalized manner, as is the case in the condemned city, is rebelling against the nation and its king, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and is openly rejecting all that binds Israel as God's nation. However, the moral complexity, of course, is the agency given to the nation to decide when such a violent process is warranted. Who decides when such an annihilation is to be carried out in the name of God? Clean of political or ethnic reasons or tribal fighting. The one example we have of something that suggests Cherem is in the book of Judges, and it really illustrates how easily the nation could be swept up in self-righteous indignation, leading them on the path to ruthless carnage. In Judges, the end of the book, chapters 19 to 21, we are told of a civil war between the tribe of Benjamin and the rest of Israel that began when a woman, the concubine of a Levite man traveling from Judah to his home in in Ephraim, was gang-raped to death while staying overnight in the Benjaminite city of Giv'ah. Most scholars and commentators note the literary connection between the concubine story and the attempted rape of the angel staying with Lot by the men of Stome in Genesis 19. So here we're also going to have an interesting overlap between the story of Stome and the story of the Nidachat and the story in Judges about the concubine in Giv'ah. One major difference is that the concubine story is about the tribe of Benjamin and the punishment is meted out by the Israelites themselves based only on the highly suspicious version of the Levite who stirs them up and incites them to civil war. And if you read the chapters. There is no due process. The justice system is not operating uh, in the way that it should. There are no checks and balances. There's no real transparency. The Levite absolutely inflates the story, neatly erasing his own accountability in the story, and so he stirs them up, and they launch. You know, ten tribes go out to fight uh, for the uh, sake of this uh, this poor concubine in the city of Givah and Benjamin. The initial retaliation begins as an attack on a specific offending city. Now I'm in Judges chapter 20. And the tribes of Israel sent men through the whole tribe of Benjamin saying, what is this evil thing that has happened among you? Come hand over these benebleial, the same word that appears in Deuteronomy 13, describing Uh, people in the Ir Nidahat in Givah so that we may put them to death and stamp out the evil from Israel. But the Benjaminites would not yield to the demand of their fellow Israelites. So the Benjaminites gathered from their towns to Givah in order to take the field against the Israelites. In short, according to the story, the Israelites originally intended to kill the perpetrators, but the war develops into a tribal conflict since Benjamin expresses tribal loyalty to their town, despite the base actions of its inhabitants of the city of Givah. After two days of brutal and unsuccessful battle, the Israelites play a trick on the Benjaminite army. They draw them out of the city, then an ambushing force of Israelites enters the city, puts everyone in Givah to the sword and lights it on fire. Complete annihilation. Eventually, the Israelite forces defeat those of Benjamin and proceed to destroy other Benjaminite cities as well. It leads to a complete annihilation of the tribe to the point of extinction, and then the end is not a pretty ending as they try to figure out what to do. But we'll we'll look at Judges 20 verse 48. The men of Israel meanwhile turned back to the rest of the Benjaminites and put them to the sword, town people, cattle, everything that remained. Also, they set fire to all the towns that were left. The destruction here is harem style, including the destruction of the booty as demanded in Devarim 13 for the Irni Dahat. And apparently, it's applied to many cities in Benjamin. It all started with the assault on Givah. And Professor Aaron Demsky suggests that some version of the Dahat lies behind the Givah story. There are similarities. And again, you could open up chapter 13, verses 16 and 17, compared to Judges 20, verses 37 and 48. There's the destruction of the city and its contents by fire, the killing of the entire population, the killing of the animals. And he writes that the similarities are not only conceptual and structural in nature, but there are intertextual resonances, Overlapping terminology, and uh, and as I said, you can see that if you compare these verses. One glaring difference, though is that Devarim is concerned with idolatry, whereas the judge's story is concerned with sexual violence, though later the conflict refu- uh, focuses on Binyamin Benjamin's refusal to hand over the perpetrators. It would seem, concludes Dembski, that Deuteronomy and judges both have in mind something that was a reality in biblical times and that internal cherem was indeed practiced. The motives behind the cherem are definitely questionable. Recognizing the potential for insidious motives behind launching a religious war aimed at annihilating a city in Israel, the Talmud concludes there never was nor there ever will be a condemned city. In Sanhedrin 71a, we find the following breita. We learn there never was nor there will ever be a condemned city. So why is this parsha written? Drosh v'kabel schar, for us to learn and receive reward. The Gemara explains this is in keeping with the view of Rabbi Eliezer. Rabbi Eliezer said a city in which there is even one single mezuzah cannot be an Irni Dachat. The reason for Rabbi Eliezer's view is that uh, it is written, you shall gather all its spoils into the street, you shall burn it with fire. If there is a mezuzah, you can't do that since since essentially uh, the mezuzah is a sign of fidelity to God. Finally, the Talmud concludes with Rabbi Yonatan saying, no, 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 this is not so. There is such a thing as Dachat. I once saw an idolatrous city that was condemned to destruction, and I even sat on its ruins. Rabbi Yonatan, who claims to have sat on the ruins of an idolatrous city, probably reflects the reality of a time in which Kherom was actually practiced, ideally to eradicate heresy and idolatry, but practically for other reasons that caused political or religious turmoil. The Talmud, however, projects the rabbinic ethos onto the passage, claiming that such a reality can never have existed. The symbolic significance of this explanation of Rabbi Eliezer's view is that an Israelite community, although presently rebelling against God and his nation, cannot be described as having no remnant of any loyalty to God. Even a single mezuzah, one single sign of loyalty, on one of the doorways of the city will save it from being considered a complete enemy. The idea that the Torah contains entire passages that are meant only for interpretation and not for application is a fascinating one, particularly since the phrase drosh v'kabel schar appears in two morally complex passages in Tvarim, the ir Nidachat, what we just learned, and the ben soror more, the wayward and rebellious son who is to be executed by his parents and community for no apparently justifiable reason. But that will have to be the topic of another podcast. Shabbat shalom. Thank you again for downloading this podcast, a production of the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. If you liked what you just heard, please give us a five-star review wherever you download your podcast today. Be sure to visit us on Spotify where you can subscribe to any of our other podcast channels or visit us at almod.pardes.org. Thanks for listening.